New York now, and we have the good fortune of interviewing Father Malachi Martin. And perhaps we could begin by your telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and some of the activities that you are uh, currently engaged in. Well, Bernard, I think I'm going to bore you, but perhaps somebody listening to this tape doesn't know much about me, so I suppose we should cover the essentials. I was born in Ireland in Kerry 70 years ago, and um, 70 years ago, don't forget the 77-0, and uh, then I was educated in Ireland, and I joined the Jesuits in Ireland just before the war began. And then after the war, having done my philosophy, studied the philosophy for three years, and taught uh, uh, little children for another three, they sent me to Belgium for my studies, and I remained there until 1958. And then I had been down to Rome in between years, and if I was finished in Louvain, they posted me to Rome to the Biblical Institute, the Pontifical Biblical Institute. That's an institute in the Vatican which trains professors of scripture. It's fallen on evil days as regards doctrine, uh, they tell me, and I think so. But in, that day, in those days, it was pretty good. And then the Vatican Council started, and I, I, I had gone to my superiors in 1957 and said, look, I don't think I'm in the right place in life. I think God wants me elsewhere. But there was a lot of work to be done. And uh, then I, I got into harness with a, 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 a cardinal in Rome, Cardinal Augustine Bay, a German cardinal, who was a great friend of the Pope's. And um, I decided I'd work on with him, and besides teaching at the Biblical Institute. And I, I used to, I wrote books and published articles in my fields, which was paleography, which means ancient handwriting. I specialized in handwriting at the time of Abraham, which is about 1700 BC. And then um, in 1964, then, with the permission of the then Pope, Paul VI, I left and um, I came o over to uh, to America in 1965 and I've remained here ever since. I lived in New York for the simple reason that the first city I s came to, the boat landed here, the U.S. The United States steamship, which I always joke was not a, uh, a boat at all. It was a, an eating house with sleeping rooms attached, run by a crowd of land lovers, but it was a pleasant trip to travel on. And um, I remained here ever since, and I've been engaged in um, doing TV and radio and writing books. I still I say mass every morning, I'm a priest, say my breviary, and uh, try to keep the decalogue and do the usual things. Um, and that's about the sum total of it all. I've published 15 books, and I'm preparing a 16th, and, um, and there are a lot of articles. You know, the usual run of articles one has to publish in The Remnant and elsewhere. That's about my life story. It's very uneventful, but it's, it's, it's my life. I have a family still living in Ireland, brothers and sisters, and uh, there are certain parts of Ireland, if you go there and throw a stone in any direction, you're going to hit a friend of uh, a relative of mine, a blood relative of mine. We're very numerous clans in southwest Kerry. And so now then we'll uh, proceed with uh, the interviews, and we're going to be discussing the topic of Satan and his influence in the world today, and also in the church. But before, before we launch into that, I think uh, perhaps you should give our listeners uh, some background or some refresher on just who Satan is and what the origin is of the struggle between good and evil in the world. Yes, but I, I feel a little competent, a little more competent than usual to talk about this because from about my third year in New York, I got uh, engaged in exorcism. Uh, and that was by sheer accident. One night I was rung up by a priest who was in the middle of an exorcism, and his assistant collapsed. So he asked me to put on my clothes and come. It was two o'clock in the morning, and they come over to the uh, to the Bronx and help him out, which I did. And then that started an association. So I've been in that field for quite a while, and um, the uh, I got very interested then in the subject of Satanism and uh, and as they call him in America, Old Scrat himself, because we always call him that in America. 
And um, so I feel a little confident talking about it. The, the amazing thing about our friend, or our enemy, as he really is, is that most people are possession, in possession of half lies about him and half truth. There's very little truth known about the devil. We do know from the church and from scripture uh, that Satan uh, was an archangel, that he was one of the brightest and most intelligent of the archangels. We do know that he uh, influenced, at the dawn of creation, before man was created, he did influence a whole horde of other angels, telling them that they would be like unto God, that they would have his power. But uh, there's the half lie. The half lie of that consists of this. Satan never knew God. He never saw God. If he had seen God, he, he could never have fallen. He'd be an angel in heaven. So he never knew God, no more than Adam saw God. Adam knew, worked, talked to God, and walked with him, as the scripture says, through a medium of some kind or other. But he didn't see God. Therefore, the, the devil knows far less about God than we think. In fact, you know, several of the fathers of the church have speculated that hell consists of a huge doubt in Satan's mind. Is he really there? What's he like? Is he really, is he really eternal? Will he end too? Is a he doesn't know because he's been tortured by doubt for the rest of his existence. And you know, if you study the notes left behind by suicides and examine their history, the worst form of suicide is the one who doubts. He doesn't know at all. He's doubtful about his own self. He's doubtful about humanity. He's doubtful about the other side. It's, it's, it's diabolic. And this is the curse of Satan. He will never know. Number one. Uh, now, he did, though, rebel. And apparently there was, as the scripture puts it, a great battle between the good angels, led by Michael the archangel, against Lucifer, the light bearer. Apparently he was called the son of the dawn. Uh, he was so brightly intelligent. Probably more intelligent than Michael, but not as faithful. And you know, fidelity and faithfulness often win out over intelligence, as we've seen in our own history. So he was defeated. And Jesus, who normally was very, very descriptive and gentle-minded, he had to make reference once to Satan, Satan's fall, to Lucifer's fall from heaven when he was defeated. And he said, he said, you've seen the lightning go from the east to the west in one zigzag flash. It takes less than a hundredth of a second. Well, he said, he fell faster than that. And the, the, the utter, not cruelty, but harshness. I mean, there was no streak of mercy. There was no, no, he made no bones about it. This angel was punished with supreme punishment. He was condemned to what we call hell. And hell, we do know about hell, one thing for sure, which you must hold, if you're going to be a faithful Catholic, that there's fire there. Now, fire can be of various kinds. And fire in scripture can be also spiritual. But that he is tortured there forever with his angels, yes. But God, God, in view of the world he was going to create, gave Satan a certain series of powers. And those powers are that he, he would test man. Christians have always wondered that the church has always speculated about why God did this, because why should God give him a leg at all? As far as we know, God does love purity. He does love um, mercy. He does love compassion. He loves beauty, but you look at the beautiful things he's created in nature, the animals and the babies and flowers and trees, lakes, mountains, oceans, sky, all the beauties we see around us, ourselves, our own beings. Look at me. My body has been going for 70 years. Only 
God was created. It's, it has its own particular beauty in that sense. It's not very beautiful, as you see. An old rifle like a little winkle nut, but the machine is still going. Now, um, but God for saying all those things, he has one great preference, repentance. He loves to exercise mercy. Uh, we have to take this as a given, Bernard. This is a thing of God. So how could he do that unless people were tempted and he had to forgive them? He didn't want a perfect world. He wanted to have a world in which he could exercise mercy. And you know, there's this marvelous psalm, which has about 127 times, for his mercy is above all his works. And this is what Jesus wanted. And that's why it's so mistaken of people who sin, as we all do, because they're caught by something, either the concupiscence of the flesh, or the concupiscence of the eyes, or the pride of life, or whatever, and they feel they've gone so far that they can't get back. That's the very situation that God envisaged. He wants you to come. He wants to forgive. Until you die, there's that marvelous possibility of being received like the prodigal son. Anyway, so he gave Satan the power of tempting man. Uh, but we, just a word about that. We must remember this angel has extremely limited intelligence. He doesn't know what you know by faith, for instance. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know anything about the angelic life. He doesn't know about the blessed sacrament. He knows it's, it's the nameless one, as Satan is called the blessed sacrament. Uh, he doesn't know the future. He can't predict the future, except I, for instance, can predict the future. If I look at the clouds and say, yeah, the rain clouds are going to come. He has a greater perception of natural things because he's an angel. He can predict in that sense. But he doesn't know what's going to happen in 1996 or 2004. He's extremely limited. But he is the cleverest liar going because he deals with half-truths. Half-truths. And uh, most of the information you find people trotting out about uh, Lucifer today is the half-lies. He's broadcast about himself. And uh, that's so pernicious because that ruins our possibility of knowing him. Now, uh, Lucifer, we know too from the church, was given a certain amount of liberty in the beginning until Christ came. And once Christ died on the cross, he was bound in chains. And the church was given a thousand years, it was said, in which to flourish. We got that thousand years. And according to all, what, all, all, all of the fathers, what they teach, and, and the revelations which the church has declared as authentic, that thousand years expired about the 1700s or 1800s. And we now are in a moment when Satan was loosed. And again, the voice of revelation and the voice of tradition and the voice of the teachers and the church and the saints and the popes comes in and say, but his loosing was only for 100 years, and that, that freedom of his is coming to an end in our day, in the 1990s. So we have been subject, therefore, to uh, Lucifer's waging freedom to recoup what we lost. Because remember, in that thousand years between, say, the year 400 and the year 1400, Christianity spread. Whole peoples were converted, whole of Europe was. And when they got to Mexico, they converted eight million in two years. Remember, they, they, it was astounding. And Christianity did spread. And even today, Christianity is the biggest religion going. And the Catholic Church is 18% of the human race. It's almost one billion. So uh, he lost an awful lot. Um, a, a point about that, Bernard, which we must always remark on, is this. It's, it is dogmatic that not everybody will be saved. There is a destined group whom God has foreseen will cooperate with him and will be saved. But it's, a, it's not a majority of people, and it's not all the people, which is a, an era people are pushing nowadays. In other words, so the thousand years probably 
raked in those souls that were to, to, to be saved and would cooperate. And the remnant then has struggled since 1700 until today. And I, I think that if one looks, and we may in these talks, we, these tapes, we may touch on the evidence we now have and that Satan is having his last stand. This is his Waterloo, but he's going to kill off, destroy much, scorched earth policy, destroy as much as he can before he finally is shoved out as the abyss again, chained by Michael, and then the reign of Our Lady and uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus will take place. I'm, I'm putting a lot of uh, doctrine and revelation and uh, conclusion into that, but that's the, the, the position of Satan. There's one more thing about Lucifer which we should remember, and it's this. Um, we have no protection against him of ourselves. No one can match him on this earth. No one. He can deceive anybody. St. Paul says that he is the transforms himself into an angel of light. And therefore, no matter how lofty you think your motive is, no matter how correct you think your doctrine is, you need protection. And that protection comes to a Catholic, a Christian, a Catholic, especially in two ways. It comes from the voice of the church, when the church speaks clear, with a clear voice. Sometimes I wish our churchmen spoke with a clearer voice, but anyway, the, when the church speaks in the magisterium, as we call it, which nowadays has been rather mute in the voices of its, of its uh, appointed speakers. And number two, you have the protection of Michael and the angels. That's their function. And remember this, that the reason to go back to, Luther, to uh, Lucifer's beginnings, we know from the fathers that the crisis between him and God consisted of what Christ concerned Christ. Apparently, to use human language, Lucifer and his angels were shown Jesus Christ as a baby and as a man wandering around Palestine, barefoot, a uh, scrawny Palestinian with a beard and a, a robe on him, was not a penny, uh, very few pennies in the purse, and he was out to adore him. And he was shown a vision of, of this man crucified, which is as being hanged. And he was told to adore this thing of clay. And he, to ask Lucifer to do that? No. He wanted to be up on the mountain of the Motai of the Congregation of the North, to be equal to God. He wasn't going to do that. So it was the sin of pride. Of course, sin of pride. Sin of pride. He, he was going to be it. Now, the reason that God did that was that he gave the option to all the angels. This is going to be the situation. You will service this man and his followers. You will protect them. You will, part of you will be up beside my throne, praying for them and, and making their prayers ascend to, 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 my, to, my, to my heart. The other part of you will be steward angels. You will guide their feet. You will guard their houses. You'll protect them from wild animals. You'll cure them when they're ill. You'll stave them off when they're feeling guilty, when they're cruel. You'll remind them that they're children of God. They're supposed to be faithful to my laws. Will you do this? Option. Freedom. Or completely autonomous. L Lucifer and his people said, no, we're angels. We that thing of a lump of clay born in a bed between the legs of a woman and finally expiring and uh, being eaten by worms and you want, we are immortal and you want us to. So he refused. So it is the sin of pride. And um, that's why the old one great God is to call on the angels because we, we don't use them at all. And the funny thing about the angels uh, and Lucifer is this. The funny thing about the angels is that if you don't call on them, they don't be very active. If you call on them and expect about 40% from them, they'll give you 40%. 
If you call on them and expect 90%, they'll give you 90%. If you call on them and expect 100%, not hoping, you know, hope, as somebody said, is a very good companion, but a bad guide. You must believe you're going to get 100%. If you do, you'll get 100%. It's a funny way God has of treating you. The same is true for Our Lady, too. At La Salette, when she's speaking to two children, they said, how can we believe you, lady, madame? And she said, if you believe in me, I'll believe in you. There's a quid pro quo with God, because he's consented to treat us like that. So with, uh, with, with Satan, with Lucifer, as I prefer to call him, um, those are the only two protections we have against him. Because St. Peter says he's like a lion going around seeking whom he may devour. And he is intent on eviscerating the church, on corrupting your soul and my soul, destroying priesthood, removing the tabernacle, destroying all chastity and purity, um, completely destroying the family, and producing a world in which there is no church, there is no compassion, there is no pity, there is no love, there is no gentleness, and there is only death and pain. And uh, destruction. You know, I work with Satanists who are reformed, and they all tell me the three tests they have to go through in order to become a Satanist, an official Satanist. And we'll touch on their existence, by the way, in a later, in a later conversation here today. But they have to kill children indifferent to death. You either have a puppy dog or a cat or a kitten or something or a bird, and they have to burn to show a love for fire. And thirdly, they have to be cruel, not kill, but just cruel cause a dog or a cat or a bird or a, a human being to scream at pain but not kill them and love to do it. That's the world of Lucifer. And by the way, if you look around at what we consider the blots in our landscape, whether it's Los Angeles or, or San Francisco or New York or cities in Canada, wherever it is, or Paris or London, what we call the seamy side, the inhuman side, is always filled with what? Death, arson, cruelty to children, to women, to men. So Satan's thumb mark is everywhere. And what are devils? <laughs> devils are those angels who went with Lucifer. They, they, see, you could ask me, and many people have, how many are there? Bernard, in this room, how many people are there sitting? Two. That's right. And how do you know that? You count. One body, two bodies. Second body. Now, an angel hasn't got a body. You can't count them numerically. That's the difficulty. In that world of the spirit, there is no numerical separation because they are spirits. And uh, they haven't got a body. And they're spirits that cannot die. So in our language, there are, there are zillions, there are millions of them. Christ said at the drop of a hat in Gethsemane standing when uh, Peter drew his sword, he said, put up your sword. If I asked my father for a moment, he said, a legion. And a legion in his mouth meant uh, hundreds of thousands of angels immediately to defend him. And they're there because they don't take up any space. This whole thing about how many angels stand on the, ha on the head of a pin is, uh, is, uh, is an old Protestant reproach for Catholic philosophers. Uh, the head of a pin doesn't mean they don't stand on anything. They're immaterial, but they're real. They're real. Everybody has one. Everybody has a guardian angel. And we are told by some, some of the fathers, everybody has a devil assigned to them, depending on their character. If I'm a sensuous character, I'm one who wants to tempt me sensually and sexually. If I'm greedy and avaricious, it'll be for money and all the other various things. But we know from exorcism, by the way, that the devils specialize. And uh, they're very stupid outside that when you get talking to them. 
extremely stupid. But in their nature, in their actual profession, what their experience, whether intellectual or the scientific or mathematical or what, they're very, very clever. They've, they've got their material pat, down pat. Um, so they're formidable things to come up against, and they're very active. Now, why do modern theologians scoff at the very idea of the devil and um, guardian angels and the whole concept sometimes even of evil? I'll tell you what to do. Uh, it's a short answer, and don't be, don't be dissatisfied with it until you hear the explanation of it. Simply, they belong to the apostasy. It's as short as that. What does that mean? It means they have lost their faith. If you deny the devils, if you deny the existence of Lucifer, if you deny, deny the existence of sin, of hell, of eternal punishment, you automatically deny Christ's salvation. You automatically deny God's goodness and the whole purpose of the cross. The whole incarnation is destroyed. In fact, you can't deny the existence of Lucifer without being led inevitably to deny the divinity and function of Christ as Savior. What's the purpose in Christ's coming? What is the purpose? To make a nice land, to give us more eggs, uh, more, uh, more happy lives on us? No, no, he came to save us from sin, S-I-N. So that's the reason. Now, the reason I say it, it's, uh, the apostasy is this, that there is evidence, and I cannot get over the evidence, and I, I'm one of millions, that we are today in the grip of the beginning of a major apostasy. That is, overnight, as it were, Bernard, in a church which 30 years ago was peopled with solid lines and ranks of clergymen and nuns and priests and lay, lay people, all believers, nobody, nobody ever questioning the fundamentals or even the accidentals. Overnight, we suddenly turn around, we have cardinals who don't believe and we know they don't. We have bishops that don't believe and we know they don't. We have uh, priests that don't believe and we know it. We have nuns that don't believe. We have whole segments of the population that have stopped going to mass, stopped going to confession. They don't believe any longer because there's a rule in belief which is absolutely categoric. And I'll, by an example, let me tell you what it is. If I say I love you, and, uh, but I never look at you. I never buy you any roses. I, I never buy you a meal. I, I don't see you at night or in the morning. I don't say good morning, good evening. The next time I tell you I love you, you can say, well, big joke. <laughs> what, is, I mean, what does love mean? I believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, then why are you violating his rules? And why do you deny the dogmas of his church, which you know is his true, true church and is infallible? So they have lost their faith. They're apostatic. They're apostates. The difficulty is this, with disbelief. This I make a comment about certain cardinals in the United States, uh, certainly some archbishops in Canada where you live, and many, many priests and many bishops throughout the United States. When you lose your faith, do you know you've lost it, Bernard? You don't. You couldn't, because otherwise you get it back. <coughs> they don't know. They think you're stupid because you have retained these, these so-called superstitions and myths. They don't know, and that's the curse of uh, disbelief. Once you withdraw the gift, Hey, Charlie, you can't believe any longer. You are incapable of it. And only his mercy can grasp by the nape of the neck and lift you out of that morass. And he doesn't always do it. And remember, too, that I think we should all remember that it's very easy to lose your faith, far easier at least than you think. I need never doubt a dogma. I need never attack uh, some rule of the church. Uh, I need never criticize the Bible. And yet lose my faith because I'm unfaithful to my vow of marriage if I'm married, my vow of celibacy if I'm a priest, 
my vow, my, my, my obligation not to steal, if I, if I really am a thief, a robber, my, my obligation not to kill another human being, uh, not to murder them. If I violate any of those things, faith is immediately chipped away. And the moment, uh, and the more I deepen into that, faith disappears. So I can leave my faith and say, no, no, I want to believe all those things, but I can't any longer. And the last thing to know, notice about faith is it's not an emotion. It's knowledge, put it. What happens in faith is the will, the mind proposes a proposition. God exists. God is my creator. Jesus saved me. Uh, there is a hell. The Pope is infallible. The church is the church of God outside of which there's no salvation. And my will freely locks my mind into it says, take it, accept it, blindly, without proof. That's faith. But it's knowledge. And St. Paul says it's knowledge through glass darkly. But that means that when I do believe, when I receive Christ in the Blessed Eucharist, when I say the Rosary, when I make the Stations of the Cross, when I go to Mass, when I fulfill my obligations in my state of life, I, I'm, I'm in contact spiritually and supernaturally with God. And I know Him, but I don't know what I know. Unless sometimes by intuition He gives me a knowledge of it, or unless I come to the hour of death and then I suddenly see all I know and all I don't know. So it's a knowledge, and we must forget that. Satan wants to corrupt that knowledge. And what he does is he tries to distract you. And we'll, we'll, we'll go in, if you wish, later on, we'll, or any time you like, we'll go into his methods of getting at your faith, how to see out of minus. Let's do that right now. Okay. The way he does it is as follows. Remember, there's a cardinal rule that uh, uh, this idiot uh, angel must observe, and it is that he can only touch your senses. He cannot touch your soul unless you've given it to him, unless you've, you're possessed. And even then he has difficulties. It's a roundabout process for him. All he can do is enter your soul through the normal means. What are the normal means? It's this. You have five senses, your whole body, okay? And then you have inside you what's called imagination. It's a faculty. And that faculty has pictures. And you have a memory which recalls those pictures, okay? Now, we get our normal pictures. I'm, you're sitting in this room, and if you look over to that wall, there you see a mirror, a beveled mirror. And if you look over there, there are blue books and brown books and yellow books and photographs and, uh, and busts, heads of people that, are, that live here. And there are, there are icons hanging on the wall, and there are candlesticks. All those images have already gone into your imagination or are stored away there. And uh, with a good memory, you can pick them all out and recall them all. That's the way you get images. And because you have a mind that thinks, and you have me talking at you, you'll understand what these icons mean, what those books tell, and what those candlesticks are used for, and who are these people whose busts are up on the shelf there. Um, so it true images, though. Now, if he can implant images on your imagination, they're transmitted to your mind or soul. That's the only way to go. So, um, he will plant some images on me, unless I'm careful. That's why one must watch one's imagination and one's eyes. Because if you go out in the street out there for a moment and see a mother eviscerating her baby, you will not take your eyes off it. And it will be a memory you will never lose. If you turn on the, the, the boob tube, as we call it in the States, the television, and you see some obscene action between two people, male, female, male, male, female, female, whatever, the, the garbage we see now is the pornography, you see that and you follow all the details. It is in you. You have the image, and that is a ready tool for him to suggest to you various things that you could do. Or if you uh, uh, look at money in a certain way, uh, piles of dollars or whatever it is, or gold, or somebody's possessor, somebody's very valuable necklace, and you lust after it, the image goes into you. He has a means, therefore, of working on you 
And that all he needs is one toe hold, and he has you by the neck, the scruff of the neck. So that's why it's it's uh, it's 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 always laughed at nowadays by the the very very uh, advanced avant-garde of these matters. But what they used to call custody of the eyes and custody of the hands, and there is no man alive who can. Uh, lay immodest hands on a woman without being tempted. Uh, he is not made of flesh. Psychologically, he has to be. And vice versa. So you've got to watch how you touch and what you look at and what you listen to. Because the voice can be a terrible medium of persuasion, as you and I know. Um, and those are the big, uh, those are the means by which Satan enters. Now, it doesn't mean that you've got to go around like, uh, like a, a barbed wire camp watching everything, refusing to look at things, refusing to talk. No. Does the, we can develop in a child or in a man or in a woman, you can develop the habits of self-control so that they feel the impact of something, but they, they easily get out of it. They're not fascinated by it. The difficulty about the television is that that's all it is, a terminal image that attracts you and fills you. There's nothing beyond it. There's no death. That's how Satan works. He works on individuals in that way, but he's a geopolitician, and he has plans for the entire world. And his plans, at that level, go to the bureaucracies, go to the, the uh, boardrooms, go to the CEO's office, go to the government, uh, parliament, uh, and, uh, and the uh, uh, civil and federal and uh, state uh, governments. And there they influence individuals as a group. And we have examples of that in the United States and in Canada, too. In the United States, we have that as regards the appro approval of homosexuality, homosexual marriages, uh, the approval of pornography as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an example of art, if you please, and all the other things that, that are he's by groups he works. And once you get a group of people together in a phalanx, peer pressure makes them all move in the same direction, but behind it all, there's that grinning face of the, of the old goat what we wanted through his surrogates. That's how he works. It's interesting that you mentioned the point that he works through reaching the senses, because I was in a bookstore once, and I picked up a Satanist Bible, and it said that the key principle of Satanism was that of indulgence, whereas a key principle of Christianity is that of sacrifice. That's right. That's right. You see, the... the the, the two words that are whispered in everybody's, the ear of everybody's soul, so to speak, by the tempter is, why not? Why not have it? Especially if it's what they call a victimless action. Nobody's hurt by it. You just enjoy yourself. You get your gold, you get your woman, you get your man, you get your boy, you get your food, you get whatever you want illegally. Why not? And it is self-indulgence. And for that phrase, why not? Embodies exactly the principle that he he uses, and we used to. We, he trains us to use with ourselves. Why not have it? You're doing it harm to nobody. It's victimless, uh, and you have a right to it. And uh, it belongs to John Smith or uh, Mabel Kelly. But after all, you're just as good as them, and they won't know anyway, and it won't hurt them. And uh, they have no right to them. They're too stupid. So why not have it, my friend? It's self-indulgence. And it's the hardest thing in the world, Bernard, I find, in the pastoral work I do, to tell good, solid citizens, no, you have to make a sacrifice. And they'll say, well, why? I haven't committed a sin. It's not so much that. It is that if you do curb your self-indulgence, even legitimate self-indulgence, because you're not supposed to touch illegitimate self-indulgence, but if you do curb legitimate self-indulgence, 
like that extra uh, chocolate eclair. Self-indulgence of various kinds. Um, once we start on that road, and, if you, if, and I find it very hard to inculcate to a lot of good people that you, know, you make voluntary sacrifices to train yourself. Because this is a warfare. It's, uh, and asceticism, as you know, means exercise. The original Greek word means to exercise oneself in the gladi as a gladiator, as a fighter in the amphitheater, at the games. You have to be active and curbing things just to be able to say, I can say no. That's why a total addiction to smoking or to drinking, apart from the alcohol part of it, the drinking, or to chocolate or to anything, a total addiction. There's something wrong in it, there's something unchristian, there's something sinful, at least venially sinful. You are self-indulgent and you can't do that. Nature will come against you, and finally your soul will suffer from it. Let's move on now to the topic of uh, exorcism and possession. Mm. And you wrote a book called Hostage to the Devil, actually, a number of years ago. That's right. We'll bring out another edition of that, because the, although we still have a lot of copies to sell of the, of the old edition and the paperback edition, we decided that we need a new um, preface, because things have gone... Uh, when I wrote that book in 1975, I wrote it for one reason and one reason only about it. I wrote it because I found that my contemporaries in America and in Canada and Australia and Ireland had forgotten what it was all about. They didn't know what exorcism was. And there was a very funny picture called The Exorcist, by William, based on the book by William Blatty, which is totally erroneous in regards to exorcism. It's a phony exorcism because it makes that exorcism to be a sort of a combination of Frankenstein and Dracula with a lot of green goo and windows breaking and bodies flying. It's much more terrible and lethal than that. So I decided, since I was in exorcisms and doing in that field, doing a lot of work, that I would get, with permission, the transcripts of five to ten exorcisms and publish them as such with a preface. I thought, of course, I could only publish five of them because they were lengthy. Some of these exorcisms were 400 hours. Some of them were five days. Some of them were long. The normal exorcism takes... And nowadays, anyway, the major exorcism takes anything up to three or four weeks. And it's, it's, we always take uh, photographs and videos, and we take radio, uh, we take uh, tape and recording of the whole thing, recording. So I decided to publish that, and um, having published it then, in the northeast corner of America, where I work in this field, we had about, oh, I would say about 40 major exorcisms per year, but thousands of minor exorcisms, because exorcism is divided into two parts. First of all, Let's talk about a little bit about possession. What happens is that somebody gives voluntarily, gives themselves, gives their soul to Lucifer in this sense that they consent to be his worshipper and servitor. It sounds as if nobody would do it, but thousands do it. And we can explain the process by which that's done. Anyway, the point comes to the point of possession. And possession means that you no longer possess your own will. It's the will only. There is a myth that the devil enters into your body. And the devil can't enter your body because he hasn't got a body to enter your body with. You understand me? He's not a, he's not a physical shape. But do you remember Hitler, that bold, bad man Hitler? He possessed the wills and the minds of millions of Germans. He never entered their bodies. He caught their will. So if I can control your mind and your will, I, I possess you. And the greater, my, the, the, the greater the extent of my possession, the greater is my hold over you. And you can see that and when we had that awful man, uh, I think his name was Steinberg, with uh, Lisa, his, his uh, common-law wife, uh, he made her cr be cruel to this little child who died finally. 
uh, in this, we had this awful case two years ago in New York. It's a case of some man dominating a woman, sometimes a woman dominating a man, so dominating that they are their servants, their slaves. That's the nature of possession. Except that once the spirit has been allowed to get power in you, it is very hard to break it. You can't break away. You must do it voluntarily, by the way. There's no such thing as involuntary possession. You wake up one morning and say, my goodness, the devil has possessed me. That doesn't happen. You have asked him in. And he finally arrived, bag and baggage, scrip and scrippage, to stay forever. Now, that's possession. People often confuse it with what we call obsession. Obsession is where he's softening you up, if I can use that expression, but a horrible process, where you're being harassed. And it's very much like this. Supposing I start harassing you, Bernard, and I say, if you don't give me uh, $2,000, and I know you have it in your pocket, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to uh, injure your wife. I'm going to um, damage your children. I'm going to ruin your reputation. And I keep harassing you. And you get letters about this and telephone calls, and uh, you get, uh, I meet you suddenly in the street, I meet your wife and say, does your husband know how dangerous what dangerous position he's put you into. I get the children at the playground and I say, your daddy's a very bad man. He's going to have you killed. I harass him. I harass you. That's, and all it does is persuade you finally to do my will. That's, and the will is, let me in, please. Let me possess you. Give me your will. That's uh, obsession. Many people get into terrible conditions of melancholia, have to go to a shrink or a doctor, it never strikes them that what they are is they're being harassed by Satan. Sometimes it happens a man who is not very happy and is married, but it's fixed, he doesn't want to leave his wife, and he's uh, harassed about another, another woman who is available. He's harassed, but he's harassed and say, listen, if you, don't, if you don't take this woman and have an affair with her, sleep with her, have her as your mistress, you're going to break up physically. Your nerves need this. So it's harassing that point of view. So the harassment, we say har harassment in America, but I was trained in England and Ireland, so I say harassment, I hope people understand the word. Harassment is another thing completely. That's obsession. You're being, you're besieged. Now, possession is, once it sets in, is uh, something from which you cannot extricate yourself. The only person that can extricate you is Christ. Christ normally doesn't do it directly. He delegates that to his apostles, and those are the bishops of the church. And the bishops must therefore authorize every exorcism. Unfortunately, nowadays, most of the bishops I know don't believe in the devil. They, or if they believe in vague sort of principle of evil or something, they certainly don't believe in possession. They think you should go to a shrink. And they do send ordinary faithful to come. I, I've stopped sending them to certain bishops now. They send them off to see a little shrink and go to a home, rest up, get drugs. And uh, it only makes it worse. Makes it worse. And it's a terrible plight. But that's due to the, the lack of faith in bishops and priests. Then even when the bishop does believe, the parish priest doesn't. And he, he laughs, them out of, laughs them out of the confessional. And um, Bernard, I could spend my whole life just talking to people about their possession and obsession and advising them what to do. It's one of the biggest... Um, need today. We can expand into why it's necessary today. Uh, because there's a, when I, as I saw, I told you a moment ago, when we started, when I started in 1975 in this field, there were about 40 to 50, 50, 60, perhaps, major exorcisms per day, per, per, per year, and then thousands of small ones. Now, there has been an increase of over 750% since 1975. And that is terrible. 
even though they repent. But they, even in normal life, they, there's a part of their soul which has been withered, like your arm being withered. Nothing can be done about it. Nothing. Uh, because the, 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 the blasphemy and sacrilege of a mass, of a black mass, is so deep that once you go through that, and I've never been at one, of course, I would never go to one, but once you go through it and participate in it, then you've done something to yourself that only Christ can uh, cure, and I, I don't know how many of them ever get out of it ever again. The last case we had was a woman, and she couldn't, she could, she, she could tell us about it, but she couldn't get out, but she had to go back. They held her with an iron grip, and no psychiatry, no psychology, no therapy could undo that. She couldn't be persuaded. She said, kill me, kill me, and I'll be free. And she felt a will commit suicide, and we can't stop it. And then Satan is served. Because as you know, suicide is the eighth sacrament for Lucifer. That's what it's called, the eighth sacrament. Can we talk now a bit about uh, exorcism? Sure. What is exorcism? Who does it? How is it done? Well, the exorcism, first of all, must be done with the authority of a, a bishop who always gives it to a priest. There have been lay exorcists, by the way, in history. In times of want, bishops will take a very holy man and uh, tell him to uh, perform exorcism with permission. But normally it's a priest, because uh, although many people do not realize it nowadays, once a priest's hands are consecrated, then there is a change in his soul. Once a priest's hands are consecrated, then there is a change in his soul, a spiritual change, which you will never lose again. And no matter how many priests say they're ex-priests and it's all over, and it was a nice job, and now they're doing something else, they would find out on the last day, if they hadn't found out before they die, that their soul has been sealed away by God, and if they cover that soul with sin, that's their business, but it still belongs to God in a special way. Now, that soul of a priest, though, sinless, normally sinless, and good, and saying mass, and doing his duty as a priest, is one thing Satan hates, because it's, it's a reproduction of Christ, and uh, the name that the devil in exorcism used for Christ, they never say Christ, they always say the nameless one, the great weakling, the milquetoast, always holding insults on him, the carpenter from Nazareth, you can force them to say Christ, but then they're going to take it out, just, you know, I did it once, and they punish you, and it's not nice to punish you at all, so you don't provoke them more than you need. Now, so it must be a priest, and he must have authority from the bishop. I know bishops, and we've gone to them and said, look, uh, John so-and-so or Mary so-and-so down the street in your diocese, they need exorcism, Your Honor, Your Excellency. And they've said, look, I know nothing about it, I want to know unless you have the authority, but never ask me again. They, they're, they're, they're afraid of it, they, they don't believe it, they're afraid not to believe it completely, uh, they don't have anything to do with it, anything to do with it. I know one bishop who's not like that, and he shall remain nameless. And um, he's regarded as, a, as a, an eccentric by his fellow bishops, because he believes in the devil, and believes in exorcism, as a full-time exorcist. In the Archdiocese of New York, there's no full-time exorcist. We get them from out of town. Uh, um, and that's not reflecting on the cardinal here. He does believe in the devil, we know. He does believe in possession, that it does occur. He does believe in exorcism, too. But there are, there are difficulties against this Archdiocese appointing an exorcism that don't come from the cardinal, they come from chancery. That means some of the subordinates will have nothing to do with it. So we have to put up with that. 
In our diocese, there is no ignosis, and the bishop doesn't believe in it, and the priests don't believe in it, and there's no help for you. And I could, uh, if I were paid, uh, say $20 for every exorcism I was asked to do in the last 30 years, or I could retire. I could have three assistants doing them on the side. Uh, the, the amount of people who know they're possessed and have deliberately walked into this trap and then can't do anything about it because there's no priest uh, and there's no bishop willing to help them and the bishop laughs them out of court. And the pathetic letters I get, which I can never publish, what the bishop said to them and told what they're going to do, go away and have a good steak, a blood, stare, blood red steak and have a good love bottle of beer. If your wife go and make love with her, if you haven't, well, uh, take care of yourself, do something nice, which means go out to the local brothel or something like that. Um, the, it's like a face. Again, we come back to the apostasis because uh, the first thing Satan wants to make sure is that you think he doesn't exist. It's, it's the old principle. Remember when we, when we were being instructed in intelligence in Rome and the Vatican, because we were doing some intelligence work, they taught us, they tried to teach us anyway, some of them never picked it up, to be anonymous. So you could be in a crowd, nobody would notice you. The idea is you don't exist. We're here, but we don't exist. And that's why the great laugh Lucifer has at times is that he moves in jackboots and the boardrooms and bedrooms and in government offices and the parliament houses, and um, he doesn't exist. It's a, it's a myth, it's a joke. What a marvelous cover. What a marvelous cover. If Hitler or Stalin had spies of that caliber, they could have us in the bag long ago. He has us in the bag in this sense, uh, because he has developed a sense of humor about old Nick. And we have a portrait of a, a black-looking man with big ears and uh, yellow eyes and a forked tail and cloven hooves and dirty books under his arm behind a bush saying, Psst, come here, I'll teach you how to sin. Satan is too urbane. He's too bland. He's too clever. He won't do that. Uh, it's too, it's too studied an approach. Um, so that's exorcism for you and who must do it. Exorcism itself is a ceremony which the, the church has a fixed form for exorcism. You find it in a normal prayer book. And nowadays, the prayer books don't have it precisely because the bishops dropped it in the, in the prayer books. They were submitted for the were submitted them for their for their uh, approval, but uh, it's lengthy prayers, traditional prayers, calling on Saint Michael, and then there are other prayers that you put in. But a lot of it is left up to the exorcist because at a certain moment I must turn around and say to you, the possessed person, "Who are you?" And the, an exorcist never obeys, never answers the question. He asks. Never answer the question of the possessed person. Who are you? What do you come? What do you come here to? You can hear these people say this. Well, why do you come here to bother me? We're doing nothing to you. Leave us alone, please, Martin. Leave us alone, please. Oh, well, what do you want? Do you want women? Do you want money? Do you want food? Go away and have it. Leave us alone. What are you doing here? Never ask a question. Say, who are you? And you keep at it and you find their names. They all have a name. Ugly names. Sinister names. Satanic names that laugh at human beings, names that, that uh, uh, make a joke of the loveliest things in the human body or the human mind. All those awful, dirty touch things. And uh, once you do that, you have them nailed, because then they obey that name. They are answer that name. And then you say, you proceed to find out who sent them, how did they come here, when, what's your speciality, what do you do? And uh, it's like a dog trying to get away from you. After. It's like a dog. Uh, 
and to bite your hand, to bite your mortal if you're not careful. Um, and the the failure, the failed exorcists are those who fell into the trap of answering questions, because it's very interesting, and some of them are entrancing, humanly speaking, and they get tied up in it. And of course, before long, their will is going with the other, with the possessed, with the possessing demon's will, and they're stuck. And then other people are caught and badly injured because they do it without permission. And I know a very famous man in this country whom I helped to instruct in um, exorcism with a warning. He's a layman in our Calgary. And don't attempt it. Don't do it by yourself. He did. And he's possessed. Now, when you read about the normal possessed person that's brought to an exorcist to be exorcised, they're, they're always loud. They smell sometimes. And, and they're cursing. And they're a social pain in the neck to everybody, and they're uh, a liability to their family, and they burn themselves, and they, they hit their head against things, they scream, and, and then they, they're most unhygienic, they go to the bathroom any place, and they shock you with smells, and, and all that sort of uh, stuff. They're not doing that to hurt you. They are like the baby who's hungry, can't tell you, and is hitting his head against the ground. Do you ever see a baby do that? When they're weeping, they, it's the way they have a signaling. They're trying to create pain to it absorb pain in their tummy, which are, which are empty, uh, supposedly. But they're also signaling. When you see that, you know a baby saying, I'm hungry. Similarly, with a possessed person who's misbehaving themselves, as I've just described, in these thousand and one awful, disgusting ways. Disgusting burn is the only word. The smell, the sight, the sound, the words, the actions. I mean, they dehumanize you. You never recover from it. Not really. It takes away a bit of your soul and leaves that with God until you get back to heaven and he reintegrates it. But uh, they're saying, help me, I'm in trouble. They can't describe it. Some of them went to and then they shut up and, and then the, the, possession, the devil takes over, the possession, the possessing spirit takes over and they then proceed to act in another coy way. I remember once being asked to interview a woman who was a paraplegic in a, in a bath chair, in a, in a wheelchair, and um, she spoke long about the wounds of Jesus and about Jerusalem and about the Pope and the, and then proceeded to try and seduce me in a very subtle way. So it was only Satan using words that meant nothing at all, just using Christian words. Um, now, there is another form of possession which is terrible, and it's called perfect possession. I've only met a bare half dozen of perfectly possessed people. You see, when possession takes place, although you can't break from it, you know. And if grace of God comes to you, or if something happens that jogs your mind, with the grace of God, finally, and you want to get out of it, uh, you can finally get out of it. And if God sends you the grace, probably he's going to send you the means of being exorcised. But some people don't want to. Some people actually want to be possessed. They want to be holy. I've met them. Believe in me, it's as real as the nose on your face. And when they're publicly possessed, they're completely urbane and calm, and clean, and efficient. They're good doctors, they're good lawyers, they're good architects, they're good bankers, and they're good painters, they're good artists, they're good dancers. They're beautiful people. They share a loiter, as the Germans used to say, uh, but they're not sharing at all. They're not beautiful at all. But they're perfectly possessed, except now and again, in an off moment, when they don't think you're looking at them, you see this face. You see this? I knew one very well in England, no, Ireland. I knew, but I met him in England later. And um, at, at first, 
first go over, it just seemed to be sort of a very metallic sort of a voice and a, and a sort of a very sort of business-like way of talking. It wasn't much of milk of human kindness, but I've known so many people who know milk of human kindness, as Shakespeare has it, that it doesn't surprise me in this hard world of ours. But now and again, and I got to know him, we were working together on a project, and therefore I got to know his movements and his, the way he dressed, and he used to wear perfume, some eau de cologne, uh, perfectly legitimate, and I knew the way he talked and the sound of his voice and his quirks of raising his head like that when he was uh, thinking, looking up to the left. And um, I got to know him. And once or twice, he came to see me. Once or twice, I saw him alone in a brown study. He didn't know I was there. And I said to myself, I don't know that man. That's an alien. That's alien. And finally, it hit my belly that he was totally alien inside. And I had a conversation with him about it. And since I was what I was, he, he opened up somewhat. But in a very veiled way, but he told me. But there's this alien touch. You suddenly find out, I don't know this man. I, I thought I did. He's utterly alien. And it's this look. It's a frightening look. And uh, just, and most people when they need it, just say, oh, he's crazy, or he's, the, he's a pain of the neck or something. They don't bother about it. Um, but it's, uh, it's, they're perfectly possessed. You never touch them. You walk away from it. Never try anything to them because they're completely gone. They've given it completely. And they're fast. They've signed the document with their soul to go. And um, it's a terrible thing. The extent of it is very big today. Um, as I say, we have about eight, over 8,000. It's, it's 842. 8,042 was the last count I saw. These are worshipping corpses composed of not ignorant men and women, not people who are stupid, on the road, homeless, jobless, you know. No, these are doctors, lawyers, architects, brokers, painters, dancers, um, nuns, priests, cardinals, bishops. Some of these people are in powerful positions then? My dear man, the last COVID we had to deal with indirectly through this woman. I mean, it was a galaxy of names. If you want anything done in medicine or in finance in New York, or Albany, just be in the Colburn. Absolutely top-flight people and perfectly well-behaved in normal life. Family members, family men, men and women, uh, society members. You know, they, they were known to people, and some of them are very, very well-known names in their, their world, the part of the world in New York, and probably in Washington, too. Uh, I, 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 it's only the perfectly possessed that frighten myself. I met some of them in Washington and some of them elsewhere in this country. And they all strike me because they're completely dedicated. It's like meeting a complete and utter Russian spy or spy for the Soviet Union in those bad days. In America, once you meet them, you know, they're going to betray everything without mercy. Similarly with them, too. It is an unpleasant thing. And my advice to anybody about it is this. Know about exorcism, know about possession, know how to avoid the devil's inroads, but do not touch it otherwise. It is mucky, dirty, insalubrious, unhealthy, inhuman, and not to be thought about. It's like <laughs> the old priest who instructed me originally in, in Cairo said to me, Malachi, he said, this whole thing is like a bowel movement. We have to deal with it, but he said it is not to be thought about. <laughs> he was an Irishman. That was his way of putting it. It's uh, uh, his, his way of saying that uh, don't touch it, keep away from it. Unless you have to. 
Now, you must inform yourself when that which some book like mine is useful to you. Very useful because it's above board. Some of the language is hard to carry. And I don't advise certain people who ask me the book. I say, no, no. When I know them, I say, no, don't read the book yet. Wish a couple of years. Especially if they're young. And especially if they're very sort of tender and they, they can't face brutal facts very easily. Some people can't. Um, so I don't advise them to, to read the book. But I say to anybody, you should know about it and know the details. But you needn't go into any great. And number all, watch out the trap made for you. Don't use the Ouija board. Don't attend spiritual seances. Uh, don't use cards to tell fortunes. Don't do transcendental meditation. Don't do one Hubbard's course. You will end up, one way or the other, with harassment at least, if not possession. And you won't know it, because you've been trained by these systems to do it. But so don't. Keep away from it. Why are only certain priests delegated to be exorcists? Why can't just any priest do an exorcism? Strictly speaking, any priest could, if he's delegated. But experience has shown the following, Bernard. The typical exorcist is not a very poetic-minded character. He's not flowery. He's not a, a first-class humanist. He's usually a very stolid character. Uh, with what we call good moral judgment. You know the type? Sometimes they're boring, by the way. Very boring. Because they're, they're straight and uh, clear-minded. And for them, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Uh, and they don't indulge in, in wild superstitions or wild romanticism or, as I say, in poetry. Number one. Number two, they have to be a proven moral character. And that is, that's one of the reasons why young priests can't be good. When you're young, you haven't proved yourself. I think that by the age of 45 or 50, if you have careful superiors, careful, careful bishops, careful parish priests, they know you. They know you. You're predictable. You're predictable, number two. Number three, they must have good theology, because without good theology, you can be deceived. You can undertake an exorcism of a person, man, man or woman, boy or girl, and the answers you get you're not able to judge them, they can deceive you. That the exorcism is done, that there's no devil there, there's no possession there, you can be deceived. Uh, so that's the first, they're the first three qualifications. And not everybody fits into that. In fact, if you take a roster of priests nowadays, I meet the young priests coming out of the seminaries. I never, I, there's one man, yes, there's one man. He's going to be ordained next June. With time, he might develop into it. But we don't breed this type of animal anymore. Then, you see, there's also this about that many priests, and I know them, have refused. Why? Bernard, there's an unconscious and invisible toll on the human spirit once you do exorcisms. What is it like? Well, let me give you the example, say, of a father and a mother. I, I, you must know hundreds of fathers and mothers. I certainly do. And when I talk to them, they have loved their children, real their children, now they're, they're grandmothers. They're, they're very near becoming grandfathers and grandmothers. Um, you find them continually saying, oh, no, I, I, gave, I gave that son, I gave him all I got, I gave him everything, that, and they'll tell you what they did in order to bring him to where he succeeded, or, or his, his daughter, or her daughter, their mother and father talking about them. They're always saying, implying that in order to love them properly as their father or their mother, they had to give up themselves. And they're not talking about money, they also gave money. They're talking about time, they gave time or their, 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 their embrace, their kiss, their encouragement. 
they mean all those things too. What they really mean is they've given something of themselves. And I remember one father said to me um, about a son at West Point at the graduation, and the boy was feckless. He was so happy over his graduation that he couldn't come back and tell his father about certain ceremonies that father wanted to hear about because the father himself had graduated 50 years before that. And he wanted to hear his son tell about the secret celebrations that the cadets have when they're, when they're, that the officers have when they're, when they graduated. And he said to me, sort of, uh, almost with tears in that, he said, you know, I'll never know what happened in Vietnam. He will never tell me. And he said, I gave him, I, I can't take back what I gave him, because I gave him part of me. And it's true. And a mother will know that she has invested so much love in that child that she could never do it again. And it's, if you really love a woman as a man, or if a woman loves a man as her husband, once they give that love, you can't consider. But it's only done once, really once. And then you haven't got this to give. You give a part of yourself. There's this peculiar transmission of the soul in its fruitful capacity. Now, an exorcist has to do that. And every time you do an exorcism or assist in an exorcism, you diminish your, your what will I call it? it? It's like as if you, it's like, it's something like that if you worked so hard with your arm that you strained it beyond, it would never get back to its original pristine condition of being a good strong arm or a good strong foot. You, you, some vitality, some spiritual vitality goes away. And exorcists I know when they chat, they normally sort of speak about it as that it's a part of them God has taken away and have to wait till they die. And uh, the old exorcists I know are men who are very denuded of self and very calm. It's great composure. Peace is always the result of good exorcism. Peace, great peace, deep peace. When a person is exorcised, they come out of it, and they're cured. But there's a look on their face that you'd, you'd pay gold to see, because they even communicate themselves to you. It's a, it's a majestic composure. They've suddenly woken up to the fact that their children have gone, they're clean. And I think it's because normally your angel accompanies you and has that sort of a, an atmosphere around him and communicates it unconsciously to you. And they have it back. They long have this shadow, as one man describes to me, always at the side of your eyes. You can never see it, except on the side of your eyes, but you know it's there. And it possesses you, it holds you, you do what it says. Whether it's masturbation, or stealing, or killing, or lying, or what. It's always there. It has to come do this, and you do it automatically. It's slavery. It's slavery. Now, uh, so that's why I'm, it's limited. Thirdly, then, there's the fact that, uh, that, that so that people will, won't do it. Why not? People say, no, I won't, Your Grace. You can find it. Complain to Rome, defuck me, but I'm not going to do an exorcism. I'm not one man just wouldn't. And the bishop said, why? He said, because I can't do it, he said. I'll fall. I love lots of things I read in his book. He's a very honest man. He's still a priest and a good priest, but he knew his own weaknesses. I've known intellectual priests who said, no, I can't do that because I'd be trapped. I, I make a mistake. It's a different type of man. It's a, it's a very solid, they, they, it's the type you find engineers are. Good, solid engineers, you know, they look at the thing, they measure the planks, they measure the guy with their eyes, and they, they deal with hardcore fakers. There's no airy-fairy castles in their minds. They're very compromised. So it's, the, it's that type of mind. Now, doubtless anybody can. I knew one exorcist who was a young man, and um, he was forced into the position because of his bishop, and the subject, the, the exorcist, as they say, but he was too fine, and he died. And they broke him. They broke him in two. 
He just couldn't take the, the horror because you must be able to stand a terrible stench. I'm not saying physically that too, but in, your, in the nostrils of your soul, there's such a thing. That's a way of putting it. The, the disgust. You're, you're dealing with something which is disgusting to your nature. And people should realize that when something is disgusting like that to your nature, it means Christ within you is disgusted. It's Christ if you have if you have it with you. Just as if you are revolted by cruelty and are sad at human iniquity, that is Christ expressing his sadness and his uh, revolt, disgust there. So if you have that. But for some people, it doesn't give them the strength to control that, but you have pity on them. And the bishop doesn't force them. Uh, if the bishop believes, that's the difficulty. So that's why they limit it. Uh, and then the last principle the church has is never let a whole crowd of fellows go around exorcism because there, I mean, there could be chaos. You know, there was a time in Europe when everybody was considered to be a witch who wasn't a nun or something like that, or didn't give good contributions to the local cathedral. So they had called the friars and Dominican friars and friars going on exorcising people ad lib. And of course, there was abuse. And they all condemned a lot of wrong people, uh, wrongly condemned people. During exorcisms, is holy water used, or is it composed purely of prayers? We don't understand. God hasn't given us the means of knowing. But apart, you see, God's presence in the world is, comes in various play, ways. His chief presence is that he maintains it in existence. He, his power runs right through everything, through the angels. The steward angels, as they call them, six choirs of the nine angels, of the nine choirs, have nothing to do but to make that that world in equilibrium, the world of matter, the world of mind, the world of movement, the world of ocean, the land, the whole thing. That's one presence, yes. Another presence uh, that God has in, in this life um, amongst men is the sacramental presence, his body and blood and soul and divinity are present in that tabernacle. Um, now, uh, a third presence is through sacramentals. What are those? Those are things which the church has had from the very beginning, uh, a crucifix, Especially blessed, hanging on the wall, a rosary beads, um, a, a chaplet, uh, say uh, the the the, uh, the sun and stock, the scapula, um, holy water, uh, holy bread, uh, whatever whatever is God gets a special blessing from God, and therefore becomes a special part of the incarnation of divinity in this stuff and matter of our world. Holy water is like that. The power of sacramentals is traditionally known to be limited by your faith. It's like the story of the old woman, you know, who had this awful hill to climb up and to go down before she got to the church. She used to go on to go to Mass every day. And she, um, finally the priest said to her, Katie, make a novena. Christ had faith in these mountains. Make a nine-day novena. And you shift the, shift the mountain with your faith. So she did for nine days. The story goes, it's an Irish story, which probably never happened, but anyway, or it perhaps it did, but in an honest way. And finally, as she was out every morning, the mountain said, ha, ha. You'll be gone in nine days, or you'll be gone in eight days, you'll be gone in seven days. And uh, the night before she went to bed, she looked out of the mountain and said, you won't be there in the morning. Now you've got a flat walk over to Mars. Well, when she got up in the morning, the mountain was still there. So she said, I knew you'd be there all the time. She really didn't believe. So our, our, the power of, of uh, the sacramental of making this, this novena, and novena is a sacramental of another kind, was not work. You must believe, must have faith. And if always those, the saints, whether it's Padre Pio or whoever, John Bosco or St. Ignatius, they always use something. Christ himself, remember, he used to mix mud with his spittle and put it in your ears uh, in order to show that sacramentals had power if you had the faith. 
and he had the power and he had the faith. So holy water is used, and holy water is very powerful. And uh, as you know, there, there's a French expression, when you want to say somebody's very uncomfortable, you say it's like Lucifer in a holy water font. And uh, it does make, they dislike holy water very much. They like crucifixes too, but holy water and lewd water. That lewd water is very, very popular water, we find. But holy water, any holy water is, there should always be holy water in the house. And we should bless ourselves with it. Uh, but in an ecosystem, it's used extensively. And it doesn't burn them, it just drives them crazy. In the exorcism, the picture, the priest shook some water on them, and uh, it was sort of as if it was burning nitroglycerin or something. But it's not that. It's the, any approach of divinity is tortured in the priest, is tortured. So yes, holy water is used, and uh, crucifix is used, and holy candles are used. Um, sometimes there's a danger for those because they're blown out, they're kicked, they're thrown, they're spat upon, they're, they're split in three field ways. I've seen candles split down like zigzag like those in stomach line and knife through them. Things you can't describe to people. Um, the temperature in the room can change. You can go from freezing cold, five below, to 100 degrees within the drop of a hat. So very dramatic things can happen during exercise. Very, very. If, they, if, they, if the demon's very angry and very powerful, you can make mistakes. Uh, or if there's a big prize at stake, then you can expect a dirty struggle. Um, sometimes the demon is extremely stupid. You can trap it. Maliciously, because you're the killer, or he's it's the killer. There's no here, there's no no much, there's no humor. There's sardonic, schadenfreude, as the Germans say, laughing at somebody's hurt, but there's no real humor or wit in it at all. Um, so, yes, holy water is used, and a lot of other things are used too, like that. Now, are exorcisms sometimes performed on places or objects? Yes. Exercise a place or an object. A room is obsessed. A room is possessed. A room can be obsessed too. Just there's a, what they call the poltergeist syndrome, you know. It's really, it's on its way to possession. Why that, that takes place, we don't know yet. We have guesses. And we, the church has always had reasons for thinking it. Theologians have, and then saints have given us revelations. But there's nothing dogmatically fixed why places are. But we know they are possessed and obsessed. Usually there are places where there's been a gross injustice, or there's a murder, or there's a body buried unknown, or there's been a severe desecration of the, the, the Holy, uh, Holy Communion or the Mass, or there's been a violation of a nun or a priest, or it's a funny thing. You know, there's a, it, it works both ways. You know, Our Lady, when she, was, when she appeared in Spain, in Garabandal, at one stage, she told the children to collect everybody's rose beads and to, uh, she blessed them. And they put them all into a basket, and then she brought it to our lady, and our lady blessed them all. Then she gave, the child came out of it, giving back all the, the, um, the rose beads back to their owners. And she knew instinctively, by divine help, who to give the rose beads to, except that when she was leaving our lady, our lady said, there's a powder compact in there, don't give it to the person. Because it was a pig's. It was stolen and made into, if you know a pig's is. It's a little box where the priest carries the host in. That belongs to my son. So it was a sacramental that had this mark forever that had once been used for uh, the Blessed Sacrament um, and now had been used to turn into a, to a woman's powder compact with a little powder puff signature. So they, they, it does affect them physically. And um, I, 
I bet you, Bernard, if you walked into some of the areas I've had to walk into in this world, especially in, in Europe and the Middle East, but also in America, you'd know instinctively no sacramental had ever entered. There have never been any holiness there. And the moment you sprinkle the holy water there, the moment I pray and pray, there's some immediate lifting of the atmosphere. I don't know what it is. Or else you, you get up out. It's, uh, the, the world is either full of God or it's full of the devil. There's no in-between. There's no neutral terrain. Let's take a look at some of the ways now that Satanism is spreading throughout uh, our society, so here in North America or in Europe. Well, we're into a new phase, uh, a completely new phase. That's our opinion in this matter. I'll tell you why we call it a new phase. There's no doubt about it that from before the time of Christ, especially during the time of Christ, as the Gospels testify, there has always been possession. Always been possession. And always been exorcism, too. The Jewish religion did give a means of exorcism to its uh, priests and wise men. Uh, and Christ himself you, you had, being lord and master, he could expel devils like that. And remember, he cleaned out seven devils out of Mary Magdalene. That's uh, a lot of devils. Um, now, we've always had that. And the Middle Ages, and right down to the Renaissance, and then to the Enlightenment, as they call it, uh, this thing continued. Then, of course, belief in the devil dropped out, and belief in the church dropped out, and Catholicism was limited to certain countries. And uh, then the scientists set about proving there was no such thing as the devil, no such thing as possession, therefore. So the whole idea dropped out. In the meantime, what we have found out is happening. And by the way, this rests as much on the testimony of demons, which we exorcise and have to speak and say what they're doing in life. Because sometimes the people who need the come for exorcism, and this, uh, I must keep my mouth shut on this, on this point, are high up in government of finance. And they've influenced upon a lot of people in a lot of countries. And you'd be appalled sometimes by the, by the near accidents we ran with great men and great women. Uh, but about that we can't speak a lot. But know that it's a fact. That, uh, because from all that testimony, from all that factual situation, as well as from what the church tells us, it's quite clear that what Lucifer has concentrated on today is the groups, group, group organization. Um, there's no doubt about it that running right through our society, say, take my, my own country here, the USA, running right through its society, especially in the public institutions, public institutions, and by that I mean government offices at the city, state, and federal level, uh, Washington. There's no doubt about it that uh, Lucifer has acquired a phalanx of servitors, of servants in these places who will do his bidding and do his bidding automatically. Some of them I've met and some of them are completely possessed. They simply, they do his will of morning unto land. And they have a very good time. They have a great success. They have a very good life as far as material things go. So it's influencing groups to do his will. And to do his will in this matter means decatholicizing the church, ridding public life of any semblance of religion at all, any religion, not merely Roman Catholicism, um, but Roman Catholicism is a special enemy because we, he knows, have something the others haven't got. And, you know, Bernard, somebody has said it, and it's true, and it's not a Catholic who said it, if tomorrow the Roman Catholic Church were wiped out completely, the rest of Christianity would fall to pieces. It's the lodestone that holds them all together finally, and it's the norm by which they define themselves. 
Um, so the, 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 the mode today is different. It's no longer individuals. It's now whole groups, it's whole governments, it's whole schools, it's whole, uh, it's all, whole foundations. Uh, it's whole organizations dedicated to promoting the will of Satan along the sexual line, along the art line, along the historic line, along the statecraft line, along the economic line, along the line of, say, um, junk bonds. Uh, it's, it's a funny thing. This is tactic. And this means that in, in, his, in, his, in his plans, in Lucifer's plans, there's a showdown coming. And he's marshalling all the forces possible. Um, and he's succeeding so far. He's got so many servants. Because he got some success. Take his success. You see, what we now, who you and I forget is this, that when you're normally doing your work, but I'm doing my work, and we're doing it decently and as good as we can, and as sinlessly as we can, we're getting light from God continually. They call it lumen twisty, light of Christ. We get in our brains, our intelligence. Similarly, if I'm serving Satan, he has his own light. He will enlighten them, and they have their own intuitions, their own instructions, their own, their own light. He gives light and makes them succeed and gives them their pleasures and gives them their successes. Oh, yes. Oh, he's a good leader from that point of view, except that they end up finally um, burnt to a crisp <laughs> for eternity. <laughs> but uh, he does endow them with it. So they're very intelligent. You can't, don't misunderstand, don't under, underestimate them. They're formidable enemies. And whether it's in the ACLU or the Planned Parenthood Federation or uh, some of the out-and-out uh, homosexual organizations, which are, which even the ordinary homosexual you meet says, my God, it's disgusting. Um, you know, he's got his servitors, and they're very faithful to him. And it permeates our whole society, even in the music, for example. Oh, above all in the music, there's nothing more influential than music. I know that, you see, what is difficult for normal citizens to imagine is this. And this holds for Canada or for USA or Australia or England or Europe. It holds for those areas because that's where Satan is most active at the present moment, according to our statistics. It's very difficult for them to realize that over a period of time, hard to calculate, but certainly in the region of about 150 years, coming to a, a culmination in the middle of our century, there has grown up an organizational institution kept very private with membership lists, uh, with centers, with leaders, uh, with a bank balance, with funds, and with great influence that, like an octopus, is spreading through every one of our public institutions. And um, whether it's the armed forces, or whether it's the federal government, say, here, or the government of Canada in, uh, in Toronto, or whatever it is, um, it is there, and it's planning things. And you can, you can only account for some of the things that are happening in our world by presupposing such a thing as this. We know it exists otherwise. Uh, but you'd be led to conclude there was something like that there, merely by, by watching the phenomenon take place. There must be something coordinating all that, because it's all moving in one direction. The Russian is terrible, Bernardo. You probably are too young. I'm not putting rank on you. I'm complimenting you um, to know that you're used to change today. I mean, there's a change every week and every month. 
But I've known cannibals, not just ten. Every decade was a tin tap of the previous decade. Somebody has so arranged world affairs that now it's in flux always. We have been forced to get used to get accustomed to change, perpetual change. That, that's not only in our politics, but in our lives. The job system today requires you to travel. You have to travel. Uh, the, the job system requires the husband to go to Seattle and the wife to stay in uh, Oklahoma, because that's the only way they can make their money work. And people change jobs every two or three years now. And they move. Or the he moves or she moves, family stays behind. I know that's an arrangement that takes place today. That's why I have so, I think, not half our families, but it's a near half our families are one-parent families. Um, but there's this change. And then another change which has been instituted, this will show the extent of this octopus, this, that we have now got used to the fact that people will wear clothes, slacks, men and women, uh, and jeans, which will show all the contours of their body. And we have to get used to that. And the videos, the advertisements you see, whether you're on television over there or here, they are showing things which my grandmother and grandfather would fall to pieces over. We have become a, we, we don't, we don't blink an eyelid at it any longer. A nude, a naked, a very revealing dress, uh, a, a male body almost showing all the, the, the relevant parts of it. We, we don't care. We, we've been made to get used to that. That's, we said that's what they do nowadays. Language, the four-lettered words that are in English. You just can't afford to be shocked if you're going to listen to TV. You can't afford to be shocked because they're going to use every one of them. You have, they've made you used to it. Another effect. A third effect is that now, if you lift your eyebrows at a dinner table, certainly in America, except in very fundamentalist circles, if somebody says, well, Joe is living with Mary now for the last two years, and they're very happy, you're supposed to take that like as if Joe, he said about Joe that Joe has got a haircut. But you know, if he says that, well, Joe and Michael decided that they were best buddies and they could uh, give life support to each other, they love each other very much, meaning they have a homosexual union, you're supposed to, oh, really? That's, uh, that's bravo. I mean, you're not supposed to, or not, not common at all. You've got to get used to it, lad, because that's the way it is. And anybody who objects to that will immediately be ostracized. But that's... Every day, Bernard, to, give, to, to let our listeners know, every day on the international stock markets, say of Tokyo, Singapore, Berlin, uh, Dusseldorf, Paris, Rome, uh, Tokyo, London, New York, about $600 billion are sloshed around in the stock deals, perfectly legitimate. And there are hundreds of thousands of small uh, investors all over the world. But there are only about up to 100 who deal every day on those markets, on all those markets with about 20 to 40 billion dollars. They, they know what's going on. They decide who lives and who dies. They govern money. They govern the flow of capital and capital goods to each country without which country dies on a daily basis. They decide, and they are, we are convinced, firmly in the camp of, uh, of Lucifer. They serve his purpose to create a world without God and a world which is inhuman in our sense of the word. They, um, have a lot of power. And unfortunately, they're going to try and... When we spoke about the changes imposed, imposed on us, in our eating, in our clothes, in the way we, the, what we hear on television, what we hear on radio, what we hear in, in films, and what we hear in, uh, in drama, and we're talking about that. Remember those changes were forced on us, and the clothes uh, the forcing on us. Uh, all those things are planned, because that's where the intelligence is, and it's definitely satanic. 
it's to wipe out Christian civilization. The devil has very little time to do it, and he has almost succeeded. So Christianity is going to have no role in this new world order. Not.